0: This morning before we get into the book of Revelation, I, I felt this week that, as I was reading in the book of Isaiah in my quiet time, I came across Isaiah 61, and I want to read a passage of Scripture, and I don't know who you are or what your name is, but I believe there's somebody here today that needs to be blessed and encouraged from God's word, because you're going through some very difficult times. Maybe it's your health, maybe it's your finances, your job, your marriage. I don't know what it is, but the Lord has really put this word on my heart. So let me begin uh, right now just reading Isaiah 61, 3, where it says these words. God says that He comes to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. So today... I want to go ahead and ask you if you would make this exchange. Would you give God your heaviness and let God give you his peace this morning? And I want to help you do that. In fact, throughout this year, I want to take some moments and just give some words of encouragement and blessing to you because, you know, I know where you are. I know where you live. I know what you're dealing with and the temptations that you face. And when you come to church on Sunday, some of you come a little weary, a little tired. You just need need a boost. You need an encouraging word. And I want to give you that. I I want you to receive this. Say, God, take my heaviness. Take my depression. Take my worry, my anxiety. Take my fears. God, I give all that to you. And now in exchange, God, just give me your peace. Give me your joy. Give me your happiness. Give me your delight. And I want you to receive that right now. And if you're watching by live stream, and I know many of you are, God bless you. Thank you for tuning us in. And we hope that you're blessed and encouraged today by what you hear from God's Word. So let me say a word of prayer for you, and then we'll get right into the book of Revelation. Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God. Thank you that it is a, it is a remedy. It is a power. It is, a, it is ointment. Lord, it is all that we need to, to live this life, God, that you've called us. Lord, I pray right now there is somebody, some family... Lord, they're struggling. God, they're having a hard time. And I'm going to ask you now to bless them and strengthen them. May you, God, do a miraculous work. You tell us, Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. But with you, we can do anything. That I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. A cancer is possible. Divorce, God can take care of that. God can take care of finances. So, Lord, I'm asking you now in Jesus' name that you would bless you would encourage, you would heal, you would minister in the strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So as we go now to the end, let's go to the book of Revelation. We're going to go to chapter 1 and we're going to go verses 1 through 3 this morning. And before I do that though, I do want to take just a moment to recapitulate. That's a fancy word for summarize what we talked about last week. And then just answer a couple of more key critical questions when you come to eschatology. The word eschatology is from the Greek word eschaton, which means end or last days or last time. So, eschatology would be the study of prophecy, the study of end times. Um, You know, so many people spend a lot of money going to psychics. They read their horoscopes, they have their palms read. Some even dabble into necromancy, which is to conjure up the spirits of the dead, which are nothing but counterfeit uh, demonic spirits who talk to people. But people are fascinated by that, and they will spend enormous amounts of money. Why? Because they have this insatiable desire to know the unknown, to know the future. And I thought, why would somebody want to go to a well that is broken, that is shattered, that has no water whatsoever, when they can go to a wellspring of life, they can go to an oasis, they can go to a river of life called the Word of God, and they can know precisely and exactly what their future is and what the future of the world is. And so that's what we're doing over the next few days, months, years, however long it takes us, is we're going to peer into, probe God's Word, and study what the Bible has to say about the end times. Last week, we talked about some key things such as who, when, and where. Who wrote the book of Revelation? His name is the Apostle John, that disciple that the Bible says that Jesus loved who laid his head on Jesus' breast. He is the author of the Gospel of John, the author of the three epistles that bear his name, and he is the author, the human author of the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. When did he write it? Well, there's a lot of debate about when he wrote the book of Revelation. I believe that he wrote it in Domitian's reign in AD 95, and where did he write it? Most everybody would agree. He wrote it from a rock quarry island out in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean off the coast of Asia Minor. It's a place called Patmos, and it's still there today. It's not a Roman penal colony like it was then, but it is still there, and John received this revelation there on the island of Patmos toward the end of the first century. Last week, I shared with you four interpretive methods whereby it helps us as we come to eschatology. And let me recap those for you very quickly. I don't want to try to confuse you. I don't want to try to burden you. But I do know that the better our foundation is and the more we know going into the book, the better off uh, we will be. Now, there are four primary interpretive methods to the book of Revelation. The first one is called the Preterist. The Preterist looks at the book of Revelation as a book of the past that everything that happens in the book of revelation happened in before AD 100 and that is a very uh, a, a position that looks at fully as fulfilled in the first century Secondly, you have a historical position that broadens it a little bit, and it says, well, not not that it just happened in the first century, but we believe it happens in Christendom, that it still does not contain the prophetic element, but you can see it fulfilled all throughout church history, and therefore that's the historical position. That's a lot like the Preterist position. Then you have what is called the Idealist position. The Idealist position says we should not look at Revelation as history uh, or prophecy. We should look at Revelation as metaphor, as symbolic, as figurative language, listen to this, that captures the classic epic battle of good versus evil. And fourthly and finally, there is the interpretive method that says the book of Revelation is a book about the future, and it's called the futuristic interpretation. That's where I come out. I believe that the book of Revelation, when you get to chapter 4, it's all future that has not happened yet. And then within this framework of interpretation, there are three millennial views. So let, me, let me go through those with you just briefly, real quickly. First of all, the post-millennial view says this. Now, post, the prefix post means after, right? Millennium means a, hundred, a thousand years. This belief is that we are going to go through a thousand years of perpetual bliss and peace on earth, and then Jesus Christ will come after Those thousand years where God reigns, where there is perpetual peace and joy on planet earth. The second is called the amillennial approach. Whenever you put the alpha privative in front of the root word, it always negates it. For example, if I were to say, um, I am an atheist, that means that I would believe that there is no God. If I was an agnostic with the alpha privative, the A that precedes the gnosis, would say that I don't think knowledge is knowable. And when you come to millennial and you put the alpha privative, the A, in front of it, that means you believe there is no millennium. There is no literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. You look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 5, and you say, well, I just don't see it as literal, a thousand-year reign of Christ. You have the post-millennial, you have the amillennial, and then you have the pre-millennial. Pre means what? It means before. So this viewpoint says Jesus Christ— He will come, and He will begin His reign on earth. And all those passages that we look at in the Old Testament and the New Testament, this this reign of Christ on earth, which has not happened yet. It will happen, but Christ will first come again. Now, within the premillennial viewpoint, there are a couple of theories. Number one, the historic premillennial position. And it goes something like this. The church will go through all the difficult times of Revelation, the Great Tribulation, and then Jesus Christ will come and He will reign a thousand years on planet Earth and that will usher us into uh, forever, forever. The other... It's more a dispensational premillennialism goes like this. No, the church will not go through these seven horrific days of great tribulation. Instead, Christ will come. He will rapture His church, First Thessalonians 4. He will take us out of here. The world will go through a horrendous, horrific time of catastrophic tragedy. And then Jesus will come with us, and then He will reign 4,000 years. Now, basically what I just shared in five minutes is the interpretive framework of the book of Revelation and eschatology in general. And if you want this again, you're more than welcome to get my manuscript. You can go online, download it free, and you can have these words, you can have this terminology, and I encourage you uh, to do that. Now, what I want to do this morning, and by the way, I am so ready to get into the text. And this is a little bit hard for me to, to just kind of ramp up and get into it, but I know it's important. I know that all of us need a little foundation. We need a little, we need a little context. We need a little history in order to prepare us to understand the text. Let me ask this question. Why will Jesus come again? Why will Christ come a second time? Why will He come His second advent, if you will? Well, very simply stated, He's coming again because He said so. <laughs> he never lied He never has lied. He never will lie, and he says explicitly in the Scriptures that he will come again. For example, the angel in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. You men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Jesus has ascended into heaven. This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner. He is coming again, just like you saw Him levitate, rise, ascend into the heavens. That same Jesus is going to come back just as you saw Him go into heaven. Matthew chapter 24, 30 says this, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. By the way, that has not happened. The first time Jesus came, He did not come in power and great glory. He came born of a peasant Virgin Mary, they didn't have room for Him in the inn, and they put Him in the, in the stable there where they put the animals. That is not coming in great power and glory on the clouds. However, when He comes again, whoo, it's different. The first time He came in humiliation, the next time He comes in great exaltation. And so He's coming again. He says, I am coming again. And then another verse, powerful verse, John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus says, and if I go, I am going to go prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. That's four powerful words, and I want y'all to repeat them with me. On the count of three, I want y'all to say, I will come again. On the count of three. Are you ready? Some of y'all are going, whoa, wait, 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 what did you say, honey? Wait, am I supposed to talk now? What, what, what's going on here? Yes. You're supposed to say, I will come again on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. I will come again. Jesus said that. Has he ever lied to you before? No. The Bible says he is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I will come again. Second reason is that Jesus is coming again. Not only did he say he was coming, but he's coming to judge the world. And that is very important because there is coming a day of reckoning. There is coming a day when God will reign and He will hold us all accountable for the way that we have lived. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1, a very ominous, powerful passage, when Paul said, Timothy, I'm charging you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing. When He comes again, And when he brings his kingdom, there will be a powerful element of judgment. Number three, we know or why Christ will come again is because he's coming to rule this world. Jesus is coming to rule the world. In order for him to establish this millennial reign or this kingdom here on this earth, then he must come out of heaven and bodily and physically appear again. And that's precisely what we see both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let me read this passage to you, very interesting text. It's the book of Daniel, chapter 7, when it says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. By the way, Son of Man, 84 times, it's used in the New Testament by Jesus. It's his favorite self-designation. 84 times he says, I, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. And Daniel prophesies that that Son of Man is going to come with the clouds of heaven. By the way, the first time He came, there were no clouds of heaven. There was no glorious exaltation. No, there was humiliation, there was crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and then He comes again with exaltation. He came to the Ancient of Days, okay? And they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him, His dominion, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Why will Jesus come again? Well, He said He would. He's coming, number two, to judge the world, and number three, He's coming to rule the world. So B, what will happen when He comes? Or I could ask it this way. What events are tied in intrinsically with His coming again, His second advent? What kind of events will transpire? Let let me give you a couple of these. Number one, it's called the Great Tribulation. The Tribulation period is that seven years of horrific, catastrophic, cataclysmic, difficult times on planet Earth. Now, some believe that Tribulation has already happened. If you're a preterist, if you're a historical uh, viewpoint, you would believe it's already happened. I disagree. By the way... I agreeably disagree. I'm not mad about it. I'm not angry about it. You see it differently than I do. That's what, You can be wrong if you want to. It's, it's all right. I'm, I'm telling you. You know, I'm just kidding. But I see it as future tense. When you look at Revelation chapter 4 to chapter 19, it is, it is horrendous. It is, words fail me. I will have to just preach it to do it justice, and, and we will. So number one is the great tribulation. Number two, the Antichrist has to appear. There is coming a man who embodies Satan. Uh, He will have a prophet who will support him in all that he does. He will be empowered by none other than Lucifer himself, and he is known as the beast. He is known also as the lawless man. Let let me read this to you as, as Paul describes him. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. With all power and signs and lying wonders. When He comes, He will be absolutely amazing in the eyes of a lost world, and they will capitulate, they will bow down, and they will worship Him. And if you don't think that that is a possibility, you need to open your eyes. Listen, friend, we live in such a hero cult-worshipping place. In fact, I heard a, a, a gentleman on television, Jamie Foxx said, Barack Obama is my personal Lord and Savior. That's dangerous. That is so incredibly blasphemous. But listen, friends, that, that, will, that will be the dominant spirit of the age. And when the lawless—now, by the way, I didn't say Barack Obama was the Antichrist, okay? I know some of y'all are going, what, 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 what? No. But, the Antichrist is coming, and he will be very charismatic. He will be very persuasive. The first three and a half years of the tribulation, he will gain momentum. And then at that moment that he breaks that treaty with national Israel, he's going to be worshipped. And if you don't worship him and take the mark of the beast, then you're going to be killed. You're going to, you, he's going to take your life. All of that has to happen in the end times when, when Jesus comes. I mentioned that he's called the lawless one. Revelation 13 says he is the beast. Daniel chapter 7 calls him. The beast Number three, what other events will have to happen uh, that are going to tie into eschatology in time? You have the Great Tribulation. You have the Antichrist who comes. You have the Millennium. Now, the Millennium is that thousand-year reign of Christ here on this earth if you are a premillennial. If you believe that Christ will come, set up His kingdom, then the Millennium is a very, very important thing. Now, right before the Millennium, you have... In Revelation 19, you have what is called the battle of all battles. The battle of, it starts with an A. Anybody? The battle of Armageddon, where the devil gets his, his people and his host, and they come together in one mighty crescendo to do, to do battle against Jesus Christ. And he comes down, he speaks one word, and it's over. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really unfair fight. I mean, the devil thinks he's got something on Jesus. Jesus just comes, says the word. And remember Martin Luther's hymn, One Little Word Shall Fail Him, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So this is just some history. This is just some background, some context of what is going to happen. And who knows? We could see some of these happen in our own lifetime. We could be the terminal generation. We could be that generation that sees Christ lifted up in the air, and we go and be with Him, and the tribulation period starts. The last thing I want to share with you before I get into the text is, how now shall we live in light of these truths? How should we live in light of the fact that there is a cosmic, epic battle of good versus evil, the Lord of the Rings, uh, it, it, it just captures this, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Star Wars, all of these mega blockbuster movies. They, they're so wise because they capture that epic battle of good versus evil. And we know that evil wins for a long time. And evil is winning now in many quarters of this world. I get that, all right? But I'm telling you, one grand, glorious, great day, that's all going to change. And Jesus Christ will come, he will reign, and he will reign forever. And you, if you're with him and you know him, you're going to be blessed. But if you don't know him, you're going to be deceived, you're going to worship the Antichrist, and you'll end up in hell, okay? So I'm just trying to be real with you, trying to be honest with you, and give you uh, this warning. So how should we live? Number one, let us live expectantly. Let us live with this alacrity, this eagerness, this hopefulness Uh, Let let me read this verse out of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus said, take heed, watch and pray. Now, uh, this is Christ speaking. You do not know when the time is. You you don't know when it is, so let us live with eagerness and this spirit of expectancy that, Lord, any moment, any time, you could come. Chuck Swindoll, he's a great pastor. He's pastoring up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area now. He's in his 70s. Him and his wife, I think they still ride their Harley Davidsons around the country. I mean, fascinating, wonderful man, Bible teacher. He says, when I was a young man, before. I think this was before he served in the Marine Corps. But he took a job in a, in, in a local business where they, uh, they prepared a, a timber and, and wood for furniture. And it was a back-breaking job. And for four and a half years, he worked in that industry. And there was a man there by the name of George. And he says, George was quite a man. He was always talking about Jesus, and he was always singing about the Lord, and he was always talking about the second coming of Christ. By the way, let me ask you a question. Do y'all know any Georges? You know, in another generation, if I was preaching, most all of you would have shot your hands up and said, I know that guy. I work with that guy. We don't have those people hardly anymore. Hey, how about this? Why don't we become those people? Why don't we become those Jesus people? Why don't we become the people who are singing about the Lord? Why don't we become the Georges who are always talking about Christ and inviting people to Christ and, and looking forward to Him coming again? I'm sorry, there's a little sermonette within the sermon. Let, let me move out of that and get back to what I, to George. So Chuck Swindoll and, and George, he said, that, you know, we would work so hard, the shavings would just pile up under this equipment, and, and he would have to sweep it out. And, and come Friday about 5 o'clock, we would be absolutely exhausted. And one Friday, Chuck Swindoll said, George, are you, are you ready to get off work? And are you going to take a few minutes to go get cleaned up? And let's, let's go out and have a good time. And George says, man, I'm ready. He says, you're not ready. Look at you. You're filthy. He says, no, Chuck, I am so prepared, you can't even believe how prepared I am. And Chuck Swindoll thought he was kidding with him. He says, come on now, George. It's going to take you at least 10 minutes. I'm going to go, and I'm going to wash up and get ready to go out, and we're going to eat and have a good time. And all of a sudden, George he reaches up into his coveralls, and he pulls down the zipper, and he steps out. And he, Chuck Swindoll's eyes got that bigger. and He goes, my land. He said, I'd never seen the cleanest, most—it looked like they had just been pressed. I mean, they were spotless, clean clothes on him. And George says, I told you I was ready, just like I'm ready when Jesus comes again. Oh, man. I like that guy. I want, I want to be that guy. I want to live with that spirit of expectancy and alacrity and eagerness and readiness. Hey, let me, tell you, let me tell you this. very important. The only way, the best way to be prepared is to always be prepared. Always be ready. Don't want to be in a compromising position. Always be ready, looking for that great day. Number one, expectantly. Number two, lovingly. You say, lovingly? Yes, he, he love. Paul ties in agape love with the second advent of Christ in 1 Thessalonians 3 in a beautiful way. Let me read it to you. Now, may the Lord make you increase and abound in what? Help me. In love. To one another, he's talking to the church, and to everybody just as we do to you. So that he may establish your hearts, here it is, blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the parousia, at the coming, the coming. He's coming again at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of His saints. In the meantime, let us love one another. Let us encourage one another. Let us live in love, in expectancy when He comes. Number three, let us live obediently. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Paul says, you, you eat this bread, you, you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. You see that? Do you see the correlation between obedience, ob- observing the Lord's Supper, and looking for the blessed, glorious return of Christ. And then another aspect of obedience is Hebrews 10, 25. Hebrews 10, 25, can I translate it with you very quickly for the sake of time? Go to church. <laughs> That's what it says. It says, go to church. Wouldn't that be cool if Jesus came back on a Sunday and we're all in church? Wouldn't that not just be Amazing. And some of y'all are going, yeah, makes me want to come to church. Yeah. And that's why Paul or whoever wrote Hebrews, they're motivating us. They're saying, be together. Be on the Lord's day in the Lord's house. Maybe just that day he will come. And so let's encourage one another. Let's exhort one another. So let's, let's do it obediently. Number four is godly. 2 Peter 3, 14. As I read this on the screen, notice this prepositional phrase, to be found by him. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him, in peace, without spot, and blameless. The context there is to be found by Him when He comes, and you're in peace, you're without spot, and you're blameless. A number of years ago, we lived in another state, and our children were younger, much younger. Um, <laughs> one particular afternoon, I, ha- Ashley was... She was taking a shower, and I was coming home, and Hannah was in the house, and uh, she turned on the MTV as a young child, and she was watching MTV. And, um, and this is what she told me. She said, Dad, I felt like the devil was asking me to watch that program. And so I turned it off because what if Jesus came and I was watching that program? That's, that's pretty good. Wait a minute, Brother Dan. You now you're going to meddling. You, 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 are, you, are, you, are you saying that I, I, may, maybe as a Christian I shouldn't be doing certain things or watching certain things because Jesus just might come? I just want y'all to know something. That keeps me out of a lot of trouble. Because I want, Gilbert, listen, I want when he comes, I want to be right. I want to be found pleasing Him and honoring Him, not that my salvation is dependent on That's already been settled. I love Him so much. When He comes again, I want Him to find me being faithful, okay, and being obedient and, and with that spirit of anticipation and, and joy and godliness. Number five, patiently. James 5, 7, and 8, this is a good word for us, to be patient. Uh, James says, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. He, in other words, he says, hang in there. Uh, Listen, he is coming again. See how the farmer, he waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also, my word, how many times is he going to tell us this in three verses? I think this is the third time. I wonder if they had a problem with impatience in the early church like we do in this church and in every church. Yes. Let us be patient. Establish your hearts. Ah, isn't that interesting? What is the impetus? What is the motivation? Because Jesus is coming. And they lived with that sense of expectancy. Listen, he could come at any moment. It was was not so much the fact that, oh, Jesus is going to come back in in our lifetime. He might. And so they lived with that spirit of anticipation and expectancy, and they were living the Christian life in patience. Number six, he says, let's live peacefully and confidently. Let let me read this verse to you because this is a very important and a key verse in the Bible when it deals with eschatology. For the Lord himself will come again, okay? He's coming. Some of you are looking at me going, wow, to be honest with you, I had no idea that the Bible talks so much about Jesus coming again. Well, it has a lot to say about it. In fact, a whole book, 22 chapters, is centered on this very theme. And, and again, you look at the book of Daniel, and you look at many of the Old Testament passages that foretell, look forward to this great day. He's coming again with a descent from heaven, with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ. They will rise first then. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with the Lord, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord." Now watch this, verse 18. "Therefore, in light of all this eschatology, in, all of all, in light of all this talk of Jesus Christ coming again, let these words comfort you. Isn't that interesting? A lot of times as Christians, we get all, oh goodness gracious, in time second, tribulation beast. Oh my word, Antichrist, Oh my word, what's going to happen? And God says, "Don't do that. If you know Jesus, you're OK. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Hey, hey! listen, he's coming again. Be, be ready, be excited, and, and let's comfort one another. Let's encourage one another because sometimes we think that we're just always going to be defeated we're always going to fall prey to temptation. We're always going to be in the minority. We're always going to be ostracized and marginalized by the liberal media. And we're always just going to lose, lose, lose. I think I'll just suck some lemons and persimmons and roll over and die. Because life is just so awful, it's just so awful. We just lose, lose, lose. Let me tell you something, friend. There's coming a day when you will win. You will win, completely win. And if you know Him, listen, if you know Him, you win. If you don't know Him, you lose everything. You say, I don't know that I agree with that. But I didn't write that. I didn't, come up, I didn't create this thing called Christianity and death, burial, resurrection. Son of God, Son of Man, King Eternal. If you believe in the Bible, then you're going to you're gonna have to believe that, yes, He is coming again, and yes, He wins. The last thing I want to share under this is In light of His coming, let us live missionally or evangelistically. Let us live on purpose. It's interesting in Jude, uh, verses 20 through 23. This is a very fascinating passage. But you, beloved... Now, whenever the Bible talks about beloved, it's talking about agape toy. That is the church. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit. "...keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life." Translation, He's coming. He's coming in great power and glory and looking for Him. And in the meantime, watch this, "...on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others, save with fear, pull them out of the fire." And you know what that tells me? Tell them about Christ. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Tell them how Jesus Christ can save them and change them. And hating even the garment defiled by the flesh, yes, we don't agree with what they're doing. That's why we're telling them, listen, there's hope. There's a better way. Christ is coming again. Come to Jesus now. Listen, if you wait, if you wait, you don't want to wait because you're going to be left behind. I don't want anybody to be left behind. If He comes within our lifetime. And I want to do everything in my power to prepare you and have you ready so that when he comes, you see him. Okay, now let's go into Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says in verse 1, the apocalypsis. Now, this word's used 18 times, by the way. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the the Greek word apocalypsis, is used 18 times uh, in the New Testament. Here's one of them. The unveiling of Jesus Christ which God gave him, God gave this unveiling to show his servants, his doulas, us people, these things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified by his angel to his servant, John, who, John, bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed, makarios, happy, is he content is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And so let, let's look just briefly, as we're really getting into the heart and to the meat of the text, let's look at these verses and see what they teach us. Uh, one writer, Dr. John MacArthur, says about this word apocalypse, where we get the English word apocalypse. He said, the book of Revelation contains truth that had been concealed, but has now been revealed. Though it nowhere directly quotes the Old Testament, 278 of its 404 verses refer or allude to Old Testament prophetic truth. And it amplifies what was only initially suggested in the Old Testament, end of quote. In other words, when you come and study the revelation of Christ and you begin to peel back and unpack this unveiling, this uncovering, this revelation of Jesus, John is going to make 278 references to the first 30-plus books of canonical Scripture in the Old Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament. Many of his verses, he's going to refer back to the Old Testament. So one of the blessings that I get as a pastor preaching on the book of Revelation, I get to study with you a lot of the Old Testament. And Some of you say, well, I'm not very up on the Old Testament. I want to help you with that. I want to help you get up to speed on the Old Testament because it will help you understanding uh, the new. He says in this grand book, the Lord Jesus will be revealed. He will be unveiled, and the future of the world will be exposed to us, and we'll have the privilege of reading And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you all something. When we get into this, you're going to be absolutely shocked and amazed with the terminology used 2,000 years ago, and you're going to say, "I I just saw that on CNN this week or they just made reference to that very... I am telling you, you're going, to be, you're going to be absolutely fascinated with the correlation between the prophetic word in Revelation and our current day. John says, I'm a doulos. I love that. He said, I am a servant of God. A servant, a doulos in this context was someone who was a slave to his master, and yet he had freedom if he wanted it. If he wanted to break away from his master, he could, but he chooses not to. He chooses to stay under the rule under the authority of his master. And John says in verse 1, he says, which these things must take place, I am the servant. I am one of his servants. Now, what about this part here where it says, these things are going to take place shortly. Now, I do not believe that John... James or Peter or Paul, when they said, listen, they, we're in the last hour. Jesus is, is coming. He's coming. I don't interpret them it, at all as being in error. I interpret them as being in urgency, the sense of eminence that he could come at any time. The Greek word entaki is translated shortly here. But in Romans 16, 20, Paul says these words. He says, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Entake can be translated certainly. And it is a very viable translation if you were to say, and these things will surely or certainly take place, or Satan will certainly or surely be crushed under uh, your your feet. And this is interesting in in, in verse, uh, that's verse 1. Verse 2 just talks about he's bearing witness to the word of God. John is a faithful servant. He's given testimony of Christ to all that he saw and It's so amazing because I imagine John's going, wow, I'm seeing some things. I have no, absolutely no earthly idea. What is that? I think it's very, very understandable in the 21st century some of the things John saw. And and it's couched in these metaphors and figures. They didn't have tanks and atomic bombs in the first century, but we do today. And I think you'll find it very fascinating how that could be what he saw, what he referred to. The word blessed there, Macarius, is what Jesus said in the uh, Beatitudes. Blessed is the poor in spirit, for, uh, for they shall see God. Blessed are, blessed, blessed, all those blessed. Here it is again. Blessed is he who reads. Now watch this. He who reads is in the singular. And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. Now in the first century, here's what they would do. Not everybody had a copy of the Word of God. Obviously, they didn't have a copy of the Old Testament, and the New Testament was being written. So what they would do is they would take, for example, this, this letter from John, and they would give it to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Thyatira, and they would pass it along, or perhaps the pastor or the church at whole, as a whole would have a copy. Can you imagine coming to church? and I'm the only one who has a copy of the Bible, and you're just thirsty and hungry for the Scriptures. And so many people believe that it's in the singular when it says, and when he reads, talking about the pastor or the the, the leader in the church, and the plural, those who hear and those who keep it, are the congregation because they didn't have a copy of the Bible like we so commonly have uh, today. And then he says again, he says, For the time is near. And again, I I think it's more of a sense of immediacy, of urgency. And and I think these words are written for for a definite purpose, and it's this. If every epoch, if every generation of Christians lived with the sense of urgency, that listen, time is short. I mean, he, he is coming. Listen, the time is near. Think about that. Think about the radical difference that would have on our ethics on our behavior, on our ecclesiology, on the way we treat one another, if we live with this sense of eminence. And one writer that I read, Dr. Paige Patterson, says this, "...because those times will embrace, embrace both cataclysmic judgment and costly witness, the message revealed is vital. Both phrases," you with me? "...must soon take place, and the time is near, underscore the urgency motif." And I agree with that. This sense of immediacy and urgency. Do you live with that? Do you believe this? That at any moment, God would come? Would He find us faithful? Would He find us compromised? Would He find you sleeping with somebody that's not your wife? Would He find you, ma'am, with somebody that's not your husband? Would He find you looking at pornographic material? Statistics say there's as many as 70% of the men in this room are looking at pornographic material. Now, that survey is done among Christians. I mean, really, if you're watching that, and and he came, he came. I would just feel so... I would just feel devastated, like, Christ, I'm so sorry. I know I shouldn't be doing that. I shouldn't be flirting around with this lady. I, I know I shouldn't be doing this and doing that. Listen, guys, I, I don't want you to hear me as a legalist. As, you, you, you better watch it. You know, no, I'm just, I'm just talking about this is real stuff. And when he comes, I want to be faithful. There's a man by the name of Harry Truman. Not the president, by the way, another Harry Truman. He lived in um, Washington near Mount St. Helens. In 1980, his family, his friends, everybody told Harry Truman, listen, this thing is going to erupt. You better get out of here. And he was very arrogant. He said, I have a quote in my study here. He says something like this. He goes, I know this mountain better than anybody, and that mountain's not going to blow up on me because it just won't do it because I'm Harry Truman. And they're like, you're a nut. You need to get out of here. When this thing blows, it's going to incinerate you. It's going to vaporize you. He said, leave me alone. Sure enough, May 18, 1980, 831, a 5.1 Richter scale earthquake was the tipping point, and that bubble burst. I mean, that bulging mountain burst, and it was horrific. Many many of you remember, many of you were alive in 1980. Let let me remind you, when it went off, here, here was the result. The force was equivalent to 30,000 atomic bombs. The blast leveled 150 square miles of forest in 15 minutes, destroying 4 billion billion board of feet timber that could have built 300,000 homes. Ash column rose 15 miles in the atmosphere. Temperatures went up to 660 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, in, within a matter of, of moments and minutes. 1985, I was there. I, I was preaching as a 19-year-old college student. I was preaching from Seattle, Washington to Klamath Falls, California for 10 weeks, having the time of my life, just loving it. And they said, you remember Mount St. Helens you know, just erupted a few years ago. Would you like to see its aftermath? And I was almost giddy. I was so excited to go see it. They took me up to the top of that mountain. And I'm telling you, you could still see the absolute devastation. And as we were coming down, I said, what is that? And they said, oh, that's there for a reason. They had taken an old car, and after it was just gutted and crumbled up in a ball, they took it and put it in a fenced, corned-off area so visitors and tourists could see. If you really don't believe it, then look at this. This is what happened. So Harry Truman, (laughs) this guy's something. He has 16 cats. 38 bottles of bourbon and a pink Cadillac. I'm Harry Truman. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. 52 people died. He was one of them. And they say he was either vaporized or he was inundi- completely covered in ash and, and nobody ever found. No, nobody ever found his, his remains. All because of pride and arrogance and saying, listen... I know more than you do. I'm smarter than you. That thing's never blown up before. It's not going to blow again. It's kind of like in the flood when Noah's like, yeah, we're we're building this ark. And people are like, man, it ain't even rained. What do you mean? A deluge, a flood. Ah, it's a bunch of poppycock. Man, I don't want to hear that. And listen, you may be here today, and you may have this human, hairy, Truman-esque spirit about you. I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about that. That's just your viewpoint. Well, what if I'm Right? More than that, what if, what if the Bible's right? And Jesus really does come again. Hey, listen, let me ask you this. What have you got to lose? And I'm almost done, and I'm going to get on you just a little bit, okay? I'm going to step on your toes, and some of you are going to be a little upset with this, but let me think if I should do it or not. Yeah, I should do it, so let me, let me say it. <laughs> what have you got to lose? An illicit affair, some pornography some drunkenness what else? I mean, really, I mean that's so important to me, you say, that's so important to me is that worth missing heaven over? see, you have a choice, and I have a choice I can say, God, take that life, and take my junk and take it all, and I don't want to do that anymore I want to serve you, I want to walk with you and Lord, I know I'm not going to be perfect I know I'm going to have difficulties I know I'm going to have temptation I know I'm, I'm still going to mess up God knows all that but here's the deal. Just say, God, help me. i walk away from that. I want to walk with you. I want to live for you. Look, look what you give up, and look what you get. My word. You lose a little bit of sensual, sexual pleasure, and you gain eternal life with God in heaven. Hallelujah. What, what a bargain. What a deal. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes, and we're going to have a time of invitation and then we're going to sing some songs. It's going to be a beautiful time. And then we're going to go out of here and just live for the Lord and walk with the Lord. But with your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I'm, I'm telling you, friend, I am here because out of a genuine state of compassion. And, and I truly believe what I have been saying. And I truly believe that the Bible is unequivocal, that it's very clear, it's not ambiguous, it's not hard to understand that He will come. He will judge you either with Him or you're against Him. And so I want to invite you today, if you're Harry Truman, and you doubt, and you're proud, and you're arrogant, and you're like, I don't believe that stuff, I don't want to hear that stuff, then I'm going to ask you right now, while you still have time, to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And I want to help you. You, you could just pray something like this. Say, dear God in heaven, I am a sinner. You know it, I know it, and everybody that knows me knows it. And God, I want you to help me. I mean, really, you could pray to him right now, this very prayer. God, I want you to help me. Please forgive me of my sins. With your precious blood that you shed at the cross, would you wash my spirit, wash my soul clean? Take all of my nasty, dastardly deeds, wash them away. God, I want to be cleansed. I want to be forgiven. And now I want to live for you. In Jesus' name, that's what you can pray. And if you mean it within your heart, I promise you, not only do you gain the Savior and heaven, you'll get joy and peace. You'll have purpose. You won't have to worry about falling prey to temptation. Every time it comes your way, you will have the Holy Spirit of God living within you. You will have this unbelievable, unmistakable power. It'll be the very power of God in you if you will believe. If you will say, God, I'm sorry. And I, I give you my life this very morning. Some of you are here today and you need to do that. And I invite you, just like our brother this morning who got saved, men got saved last week, gave his heart to Christ and was baptized. Just like Walter, uh, he, he came today saying, hey, i, I got to get serious. I'm going I'm to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. We're offering that opportunity for you to do that even now. We're going to have pastors. We're going to have counselors. We're going to have people waiting on you. We want you to come. Let us help you. Let us pray with you. You, you say, well, I don't know that I agree with that. Listen, you don't have to agree with everything. But you have to agree with the basic rudiment of truth of who Jesus is, okay? So let's, let's agree on that. And let's do business with God right now. You ready? Let's, let's do it. Father, we love you so much. and We're going to stand in your honor. We're going to just praise you, worship you. And, Lord, we give you our lives afresh and anew. For those of us that know you, God. May we live expectantly. May we live lovingly and obediently. And may we live, Lord, evangelistically. May we live in a way that will bring honor to you when you come. And for those, Lord, who are coming for the very first time, bless them, God. Give them courage. Give them hope. Give them strength. Let them know, Lord, we're not against them. We're for them, and we want to help them. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? God bless you. Nobody's leaving. Everybody's singing, praising the Lord. Uh, Terry's going to lead us. Our pastors are here, our counselors, deacons, servant leaders. Man, let us pray with you. Let us encourage you even now as we sing. God bless you.